I want to know what happened to Paul. Not Grimmond or Williamson or even Bazikian, but <laughs> the Apostle Paul. Because last week, in his comments on judging in 1 Corinthians 4, Paul seemed unconcerned about judging, him judging others, others judging him, even dismissive of it. So in verse 3 he says, I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I don't even judge myself. It's the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes and he'll bring to light what's hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Now I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you might learn from us the meaning of the saying, don't go beyond what's written. So it seems like he's fairly relaxed, fairly laid back, non-judgmental. But now listen to what he goes on to say in verses 8 to 21. And hear the sarcastic, hear the mocking tone of the apostle. Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. You've begun to reign, and that without us. How I wish you really had begun to reign so that we might also reign with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like those condemned to die in the arena. We've been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as human beings. We're fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We're weak, but you are strong. You're honoured and we are dishonoured. To this very hour we go hungry and thirsty. We're in rags, we're brutally treated, we're homeless. We work hard with our own hands. And when we're cursed, we bless. And when we're persecuted, we endure it. When we're slandered, we answer kindly. We've become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. I'm writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you don't have many fathers, for in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. Therefore I urge you to imitate me. For this reason I've sent to you Timothy, my son whom I love, who's faithful in the Lord, and he'll remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. Some of you have become arrogant, as if I weren't coming to you. But I will come to you very soon, if the Lord's willing, and then I'll find out not only how those arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God isn't a matter of talk, but of power. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a rod of discipline, or shall I come to you in love? and with a gentle spirit. What is going on for the Apostle? I was taught when I was a child that sarcasm is the lowest form of wit. Sarcasm is the put-down of other people. When you haven't got a strong argument of your own, then you use sarcasm to put other people down. And that's what the Apostle is doing here. I'm the Apostle, but you, you have everything that you want. Already you have so much that you've begun to reign. 
though everything you have is through me, you've raced ahead and are reigning, and you're reigning without me, I'm lagging behind. You are the wise, you are the strong, you are the honoured. Now, I'm not sure that in their pride that the Corinthians would have picked up the mocking in these words because, as you're probably aware, when Paul opens his letter, he opens it by saying that in his wisdom, God has not chosen the wise nor the noble, but God has chosen the foolish, the weak and the despised. And yet this is what the people are claiming to be, to be wise and above and honoured. The whole section is dripping with mockery and sarcasm. And the section ends with the threat of Paul coming and coming to them with a rod of discipline. So I want to ask, what's going on for the Apostle? Why the change in tone? Why does he have this intensity? There is actually clearly very strained sinews of relationship with these Corinthians and what he is writing now is in great danger of severing that. So why is he doing it? Because you find this sort of language very rarely in Paul, perhaps in Galatians and 1 Corinthians 11, but not in many other places. Why this intensity? Why the harsh tone? And the answer is that what he is talking about really, really, really matters. And it matters to him. He's risking so much and so it should matter to us. As our chapter unfolds, you can see a movement that goes on here, an escalation of what's occurring. The chapter opens with a warning against judging and especially that superiority of judgmentalism that judges another person's servant, even though you don't have all the information that's necessary in order to judge. We looked at that last week. But then from judging, it intensifies to boasting in verse 7. Boasting that use of loud and bold words that both extols you and diminishes the others. And the intent of it is to suck the value and the identity from the other person and siphon it to yourself. And from boasting to the even more intense arrogance of verse 18. Arrogance doesn't listen to another person because the other person can contribute nothing. The one who is arrogant is more than satisfied in what they have. There is no need, no value, no point in engaging with the underlings. And so in this chapter there is that natural movement that goes on from unpleasant judgmentalism to ugly and wicked arrogance. And that matters and it must be stopped. And by the way, there's actually movement the other way. It's a two-way street. It's not just that judgmentalism leads to boasting and that leads to arrogance, but also arrogant people infect others with boasting and that boasting infects other people to judgmentalism. And that's why I think while not everybody in Corinth is arrogant, the whole church at the end of the chapter is held accountable for the arrogance. So judging, boasting and arrogance. All of these things matter as a way of life and they matter because 
they are not. In fact, they're the opposite of the character of the kingdom of God. You see that in verse 20. The kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but a matter of power. And we'll come back to that. So what does judging and boasting and arrogance achieve? Absolutely nothing. Has anyone ever been drawn nearer to our Saviour through judgmentalism? Has anyone ever been saved by a boastful comment? Who has grown through the arrogance of another person? Absolutely nothing does judgmentalism and boasting and arrogance bring. But it's not just unproductive, it's also devilishly destructive. Because what does boasting and arrogance tell the world about the kingdom of God? Well, it tells the world that the kingdom of God is full of, full of themselves, self-deceived people who don't care for other people. What they care about those in the kingdom of God is their view of themselves and how they have made it to their position and without any help from anybody else, thank you very much. Terrible for the perception of the kingdom. But what does boasting and arrogance do for you, boastful and arrogant one? It deceives you into thinking that you've already begun to reign, that you have it all, that you're wise, that you're strong, that you're honoured. And if you believe that, so begins that self-justifying cycle that makes us feel good with less and less need to face up to and labour painfully as God works his transformation in us. Now, we all know it. Other people need to change. We teach it, we preach it, but we're not that bad. I'm sure we've all felt that from time to time. So boasting achieves nothing good. It it dishonours the name of Christ and in the end just causes you to stagnate and destroys you. Can you see why Paul writes with the tone that he does? But there's also another reason why Paul writes as he does, and that is that he cares and cares deeply for the Corinthians. Verse 14, I'm writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you don't have many fathers For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. In case you forgot, Sunday was Father's Day. What I love doing on Father's Day is getting out a scrapbook that I have in the drawer beside my bed where I've glued in the Father's Day cards from my children from the time that they were so little that their preschool teachers had to write the words where the kids scrawled a picture and the preschool teacher had to write what the picture was about because there's no way of telling what it was about. <laughs> and I look through them and I sit revelling in each of those cards. I don't really care about gifts because it's these children that are so precious to me. I've got to say, more precious even than you, despite any cards that you might give me. <laughs> but... While I revel in those cards, there are times where I do say the harsh and hard things to my kids, and I have to, because they're the words of a father, a father who cares for his children and wants them to see, wants to see them grow up rightly. And that's why Paul writes as he does. 
He writes with them to them with such force because he cares for them, not to put them down, but to warn them, because they are in great peril. And that's why he uses the tone that he does. But these two paragraphs that I've just read to you are not just a warning about the dangers of judgmentalism and boasting and arrogance. They are much, much more. They are a lived example of how to live, of what the Corinthians are to copy, and they are a very, very sharp prod to imitate Paul. Verse 16, Therefore I urge you to imitate me. Just seven words in the NIV that really is the heart of this section. And so, given that this is the heart of it, what is it that you are to imitate, Corinthians? What is it that we are to imitate? Is it the way that Paul walks? Is it his accent? Is it his ability as a leather worker? Well, of course, it's none of that. Certainly, they are to imitate Paul's concern that boasting and arrogance matter and need to be eliminated. But more than that, Paul is saying, imitate my humility. Imitate the way that I relate to other people. Though he is an apostle, though he is their apostle, he doesn't demand rights. He works hard with his hands so as not to burden other people. When he is cursed by others, Cursed is such a strong word, isn't it? Such strong language. It's aggressive. It is a desire for bad to befall you. And what does he do when faced with cursing? He responds by blessing the curses. And when persecuted, persecution goes beyond cursing. It's an active attempt to destroy you. What does Paul do in that circumstance? He responds with endurance. He doesn't seek a more comfortable way, doesn't try to defend himself, he endures. And when slandered, slander, you've probably all felt this, it's an undeserved attack, and if you've experienced it, you know the pain of it. That is, you do what is right and people accuse you of a false motive. What happens when that happens, when slandered? He answers not in retaliation, but with kindness. This kind of imitation has a name. The name is humility. That is seeking the best interest of others without consideration of the cost to you. And it's not just a way of thinking, I've got to think humbly, I've got to think humbly, I've got to think humbly. Humility is lived every day in all of the little decisions. And so humility is both deeply costly and pervades all of our relationships in so many ways. That's hard. But I don't think imitation ends there, though I want it to. We all get humility. We get how humility is a Christian virtue, how we must keep working on it in our lives, But I think Paul is calling the Corinthians and so us Christians down through the ages as well to not just imitate his humility but to join with him in humiliation. Take a gulp while we have a look at that. Verse 9. 
For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like those condemned to die in the arena. We've been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. This is not just a case of the apostle thinking, well, I can't keep up with the Corinthians, so they'll rule without me, but I'll put up with that. God is making a spectacle of him, a spectacle to both the angels and to humans, the spiritual and the physical realm. It is the humiliation of defeat. The victorious king comes back from the campaign. He enters into the city with praise. And the defeated, those about to be slaughtered in humiliation, are trailing behind. This is more than just seek the good of others at cost to you. This is be laughed at, ridiculed, mocked, despised, slaughtered. See Paul's self-description in verse 13. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world. And these are the words of the apostle. The scum of the earth. The slimy, gooey, unidentifiable stuff that you cringe at when you remove it from the bottom of the dishwasher drain You hope that you don't get it on your hands. You tap it into the bin so you can forget about it. Then you wash your hands of it. That's the sort of thing that he is using to describe what he is. And and as I think about this, if I'm honest with you, I can't begin to imagine what humiliation like that might look like for me. I just don't go there. A few years ago, when ISIS was at its height... And we probably all saw those 26 Christians clothed in those red jumpsuits lined up along the beach and then beheaded. I can't imagine the courage that they must have had. But I can imagine martyrdom. But humiliation, what does that look like? To be honest, I actually can't begin to imagine it. But the Apostle gives us a picture of humiliation from his own experience. It's not humility at this point, it is humiliation. Verse 11. To this very hour we go hungry and thirsty. We're in rags and we're brutally treated. We are homeless. I cannot conceive that Saul the Pharisee, the one before whom those people laid their clothing at the stoning of Stephen, ever thought that this would be his future. At any point he could have pulled away from this and now what is, his, what is his life like? Real hunger. We've never experienced that. Having to beg to get even a glass of water. The insult as he's proclaiming Christ in see-through, ripped, tattered fabric and the wealthy and the slave and the poor all laughing at him because he has such tattered clothing the ignominy of every day having to ask strangers for a bed for he has none of his own. That is humiliation. So I ask myself, what could possibly lead someone to choose a pathway like this? He didn't need to. And surely it is only if you believe that nothing else matters in life more than what you have been entrusted with that all you have and all you need is in Christ. 
this image is so grotesque and personally challenging that I want to ignore it. And I wonder whether, at least in part, this is why Paul sends Timothy to the Corinthians to remind them of that which is so natural to avert your eyes to. His way of life is not just the way of humility, it's the way of humiliation. So let me say this in another and perhaps clearer way. The opposite of arrogance, which we all agree is bad, at least in this part of scripture, is not humility, but humiliation. And Paul's intention is to come to Corinth and in Tony Abbott's style, shirt front the arrogant. Verses 19 and 20. I will come to you very soon, if the Lord is willing, and then I'll find out not only how those arrogant people are talking, but what power they have, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. We have just seen that in arrogance there is no power, just deceit. But power is a familiar word in the, in the Corinthian correspondence and surprisingly it's normally used about what seems to be powerless. The apostle, the word of the cross, weakness. But it is this power and nothing less than this power of God that can do this, that enables weak, sinful people to be united with God and to share in his glory, to become sons of God, to share in the divine nature. When we face that terrifying judgment seat of God and to feel the arm of your Saviour Jesus around you saying, it's great to have you home, and the Father getting down from the throne and embracing you, that is the power of God. And it seems that humiliation is the means that God uses to bring that about. Would we be willing to be mocked by the Sydney Morning Herald and not to respond in kind? Would I be willing to be laughed at by all of my clergy peers and my superiors for the sake of Jesus and of other people? That's really the question that's asked, I think, in this passage. About 15 years ago, while in England, in the middle of the debate, on the acceptance of homosexual bishops into the Church of England, Philip Jensen called it a prostitution of Christian ministry and leadership to privately hold liberal views on homosexual relationships and yet maintain the church's opposition to it. Philip said this because he saw his responsibility as a shepherd and watchman for the flock of God. And for saying that, the newspapers in Australia and in the United Kingdom went for him. Clergy everywhere attacked him. The ABC's media watch led a charge with accusation after accusation after accusation to which Philip didn't respond. There was no one who came to his aid. Here is an example of humiliation for the honour of Christ. Next month, If you're an Anglican, it's our synod. Is our desire for our upcoming synod that we be a small target with the goal of not being mocked in the newspapers for our positions or is it to declare the excellencies of our Saviour to a world that doesn't want to and will not hear? 
Do we want our world to admire us because of the qualities of our degrees that we offer here or our willingness to be the scum of the earth for Christ's sake and for the sake of others? In our student ministries, where will we draw the line about the humiliation we're willing to suffer for the sake of God and for the salvation of young people? They're the sorts of questions that this passage raises. Let's pray. Our Lord God, we all want your power to be displayed, that we've been made alive, seated with the crucified one. We all want that. But Heavenly Father, we don't want the humiliation that may come alongside that. So lead us to where we need to be, even at times when we don't want to be there. Please make us convinced that Christ and his glory is what must be and should be and is the best as our goal and enable us to make decisions that are consistent with that so that we might not be merely people who talk but people who exhibit your power that comes through humiliation. Amen.